From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zazan. And I am Mira Nabulsi. This week, we cover the crackdown on protesters in Sudan and the ongoing fight for democracy in that country. We speak with McGill University political scientist Khaled Madani. Later in the program, we mark the 10th anniversary of Iran's 2009 mass protests by speaking with Iranian-German documentary filmmaker Ali Samadi Ahadi about his searing film, The Green Movement, which integrates animation and live footage, testimonials and blog posts to tell the story of courageous people who took part in mass protests, disputing the stolen presidential elections, which gave then-President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad a second term in office. Stay with us. On June 3rd, the state security forces and its militia violently attacked and dispersed thousands of demonstrators who had camped outside the military headquarters in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum, for weeks. The violent crackdown left dozens dead and hundreds wounded. The sit-in was initially held seeking an end to Omar al-Bashir's three-decade authoritarian rule and later to demand that the army generals who toppled him hand power to civilians. According to doctors linked to the protest movement, at least 128 people have been killed since June 3rd. Doctors also say paramilitaries carried out dozens of rapes during the attack on the protest camp. To get a sense of the recent events in Sudan, Shahram Aghamir spoke with Khalid Madani, who's an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and the chair of the African Studies program at McGill University. Professor Madani starts by talking about the June 3rd massacre in Khartoum. Well, the massacre that occurred on uh, June 3rd was really pivotal in, in terms of changing the political dynamics, in particular it stalled and eliminated, rather, the, the negotiations that were ongoing between the what was then termed the Transitional Military Council and the Forces for Freedom of Change, the umbrella group that encompasses upwards of 20 political parties and different associations. A few hours prior to this horrible massacre, uh, there was a great deal of progress on the negotiations. The structure of government was agreed upon. In terms of the sovereign council, there was an agreement that they would be the majority civilian, even an agreement on a rotating leadership of the sovereign council that uh, would have, in the course of three years, half of that time, uh, you'd have a military leader and then a rotation of a civilian leader. So there were compromises uh, made on, on the part of the forces of freedom of change that many people thought would eventually result in an agreement that would lead to a civilian-led government. There was also an agreement on the legislative of the interim government, uh, wherein 67% of a 300-member parliament would uh, be appointed by or would come from the forces of freedom of change. So many Sudanese were optimistic at that time. A few hours um, after that uh, agreement, or at least a few hours before it was supposed to be signed, according to members of of the opposition, what the... Transitional Military Council did was to sanction and uh, many, of course, would say command the rapid support forces, the paramilitia forces, to enter the sit-in, disperse it by force, 
uh, and of course, uh, as you just mentioned, uh, lead to a massacre that uh, the city of Khartoum has never experienced in entire history. Not only were upwards of 100 people killed, but as you said, uh, scores of um, rape cases, uh, women as well as uh, some men. Uh, there was a horrendous throwing of uh, bodies into the Nile River. The massacre that occurred on June 3rd is unprecedented in the Great Khartoum capital area. There was an incident similar to this in 2013 in which 200 people were also slaughtered by the Rapid Support Forces militia. Um, and that was, of course, also a, a pivotal, horrendous uh, um, massacre that occurred. But this one is even larger in scale in the Khartoum area. But I want to be clear, of course, that uh, there have been, of course, uh, much larger massacres in Darfur and in uh, the conflict areas of the Nuba Mountains and uh, Blue Nile, which borders South Sudan. But in terms of the Great Khartoum area, this is unprecedented in terms of the kind of violence and killing that, and rape that have occurred by militia forces in the capital city itself. This event uh, changed the uh, kind of dynamic on the ground and in terms of Sudan's position, or rather the Transitional Military Council's position worldwide, as you probably have Garnet and your uh, listeners probably know at this point, the entire world is now looking at Sudan, especially with respect to this kind of violation of, of human rights, whether it is Western countries, the International Criminal Court, the United Nations, uh, the European Union, all have condemned what this Transitional Military Council has done, and of course, what the Rapid Support Forces have done on the ground. So um, because of those events, to bring the, your listeners up to date, we are now basically at a standstill. The opposition has said that they will not negotiate without a mediator. And um, today, the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia is traveling, I believe, to Khartoum uh, to try to restart negotiations uh, between the what Sudanese now call the military council, or rather the coup council, so to speak, rather than transitional military council, and the forces of freedom of change. It's important to highlight that the forces of freedom of change following this horrible massacre have been fairly, very clear about putting forth conditions for the resumption of negotiations. These include the insistence on an independent international committee to investigate the massacre and those responsible for it. They have also called on the dispersal of the militia of the rapid support forces from Khartoum and asking that they leave the city and go back to the barracks, so to speak. There has also been an internet shutdown immediately after the massacre to not only quell protest and dissent, but many would say also to give carte blanche to the violence perpetuated by the military council and the militia. And so the opposition, uh, one of the conditions is that the internet has to be unblocked and open to the Sudanese people, which is extremely uh, important. And also the release of uh, many, many political prisoners who are still detained. Uh, those are the conditions that have been put forth by the forces of freedom of change in order for these talks to resume. So this is where we stand at the moment, and that is to bring the listeners up to date. So we'll see how the mediation goes on. At this point, it's led by the African Union in conjunction with the regional body, the Intergovernmental Authority of, of Drought and Development, EGAD, that uh, comprises countries in the Horn of Africa. What can you tell us about the Rapid Support Forces, RSF, more popularly known as the Janjaweed, the militia responsible for committing war crimes in Darfur? We should also talk about their commander, who is widely known by his nickname, Hemeti, 
who back in April remarkably claimed that he had refused an order by Mr. Bashir to open fire on protesters. Yes, I think that the origins of the Rapid Support Forces go back directly to the Janjaweed, which I think that your listeners and the whole world know were the militia forces that were established by Umar Bashir himself beginning in 2003 to enact the horrible uh, ethnic cleansing against insurgents in Darfur. That at the time was led by a man by the name of Musa Hilal, uh, from, uh, chosen from a small pastoral group in the northern part of the Darfur area. They basically were established as a militia and as a mercenary force by Umar Bashir in order to put down the insurgency in Darfur. And uh, beginning in 2003, as I'm sure you know, and many of your listeners uh, know, upwards of almost 300,000 people were killed in the Darfur area. Perhaps a million and a half were internally displaced. A real uh, massacre, unprecedented variety, even by the standards of the conflicts in Sudan. It's important to understand that, uh, as I said, the RSF is really directly linked to the Janjaweed. It's really the latest mutation. The current leader, Mohammed Hamdan Daglu, uh, known as Hemeti, it was took over the leadership in 2013 at the behest of, obviously, the appointment by Omar Bashir for him to take over these militias. He was also responsible for so-called border security in Darfur area that was uh, indirectly funded by the European Union to stem the tide of immigration. And by 2015, uh, he was, uh, or the militias, the rapid support forces were incorporated into the army as a separate paramilitary force, but basically as a Praetorian guard to protect Umar Bashir himself personally. So he used the militias and the Hemeti to protect himself personally. When the sit-in began on April 6, and the millions of Sudanese waged the sit-in in front of the army headquarters, Hemeti, of course, as you noted, came out and said that he was in support of the Sudanese sit-in and the protesters and the revolution. And he was received by some as someone who was on the side of the people. He did say that he had rejected the order by Omar Bashir to disperse the sit-in by force. We now know, of course, that there was never any intention on his part or the part of the Transitional Military Council to really cede power to a civilian-led government. But he did have some semblance of legitimacy, at least at the very beginning, in terms of siding with the people. And the forces of freedom of change were primarily interested at the time in a peaceful transition to civilian-led government, understanding that there was, of course, a security or there could be a security vacuum if the rapid support forces were not incorporated as part of the, uh, these negotiations. So right now, of course, he's the deputy of the military council. And by most accounts, he really is the most influential on the side of the military because, of course, his, uh, he has forces in Khartoum and some people say they may number up to upwards of 40,000 throughout the country, not only in the Khartoum area. Given his ascendance to where he is today, do we have any evidence of a rift between the traditional armed forces, if you like, of Sudan and the RSF Janjaweed? Also, the opposition had tried to drive a wedge between the lower rank officers of Sudan's armed forces and its top brass. How effective has that strategy been? It is a strategy that has been quite effective 
in some sense, although in retrospect, people would think that it has not been effective. It has been effective in the sense that the protesters were able to effectively uh, draw in middle and lower ranking officers and uh, not just the rapid support forces. I would argue uh, really the those uh, in the military establishment who actually sided with the protesters uh, were not so much Hemeti or the rapid support forces, but rather people in the national army, the Sudanese armed forces, middle and lower ranked, uh, who actually protected the sit-in from uh, militias and snipers during the sit-in, and that is uh, well documented. Uh, so there is no question that um, the enticement by the protesters of middle and lower ranking officers to be part of the re revolution, to return to their uh, legitimate role as the protector of the people, uh, did in fact work. Uh, and this is why you had the sit-in being so successful, and uh, it led to the ouster of Umar Bashir, although of course Hamidti likes to take credit for it. But it really is the middle and lower ranking officers who not only defected, but protected the protesters in the sit-in, which is um, extremely important. Uh, another indication of the success of the protesters and the opposition of enticing and bringing the middle and uh, lower ranking officers to the fold has to do with the massacre itself on June 3rd. I think that maybe some of your listeners are not aware, but uh, prior to this horrible massacre, uh, what uh, the military council commanders did and what the militias, the rapid support forces did, was to disarm middle and lower ranking officers and detain many of them in preparation for this premeditated uh, assault against uh, the peaceful protesters in the sit-in. So it's precisely because of the effectiveness and the success of bringing uh, many middle and lower ranking officers and fermenting a division between uh, the head of the military council at the moment, General Abdel Fattah Burhan, and Hemeti, uh, that you find the detention uh, and the imprisonment. Uh, recently, for example, 68 uh, middle ranking and lower ranking officers were imprisoned uh, without any charge by the military council. And that, of course, is a clear indication that there are divisions, deep divisions between the upper ranks, that small elite that really still represents the remnants of the Umar Bashir regime and rifts between, of course, the head of the military council and Hemeti himself. And most importantly, a rift, a very deep divisions between the top ranked uh, military officers and the middle and lower ranked officers who are appalled by all accounts by what happened in the massacre. They insist they had nothing to do with it. And they were not able to protect the people because they were uh, disarmed and uh, prior to the forcible and violent dispersal of the peaceful protesters in the sit-in. How serious is the rift, if you like, between RSF and Hemeti on one side and the traditional armed forces in the fact that they're both jockeying for power? Uh, well, the rifts are not that large at the moment, primarily because um, over the years, what you had is, of course, the weakening of the legitimacy and uh, the strength and the cohesiveness of the Sudanese armed forces. I would date that, of course, back to the establishment of the RSF, and particularly in 2015, when Bashir brought in the RSF uh, to basically outcompete and undermine uh, the uh, autonomy of the Sudan armed forces. That must have created a resentment on the part of those armed forces. Oh, absolutely. Without detailing all of the history of the RSF vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Sudan armed forces, there were already deep uh, rifts and even violent confrontations uh, where the RSF, for example, was utilized in the Nuba Mountains and in the Blue Nile states in recent years. Very strong 
kind of divisions between who was in command of operations, who would be in command of the foot soldiers. And the Bashir regime used the RSF to outbid and undermine the authority of the Sudan armed forces, even in the battlefield and not only in the Khartoum area. And so those rifts really remain. Um, the issue of unity between the military council and the RSF really has to do with their both kind of interest in maintaining their own survival. Burhan and Himiti have a very close relationship because your listeners may, may not be aware, but General Abdel Fattah Burhan, who's the, now the head of the military council, did also play a very important role in conjunction with Himiti and the RSF as border police, so to speak, or border guards in that four. And he was very much involved with Himiti in uh, putting down insurgencies uh, that led to the killings of thousands of innocent victims in that four. So they're basically in the same political and military bed, so to speak, at the moment. And that's why between them as individuals, they still have a very close connection, uh, both of them interested in maintaining their own survival. The Forces of Freedom of Change, which is the opposition bloc, consists of many groups and parties with a range of reformist to radical politics. Given the broad spectrum of its participants, has this bloc been able to maintain its cohesion in the face of increased state repression? Are any of traditional reformist parties drifting away from the opposition? Well, this is a very interesting question because it really hinges on and speaks to the efforts that the military council has implemented or tried to uh, put through in order to divide the opposition, which in Sudanese political history, it won't come as a surprise to you or your listeners, has been one of the most important instruments uh, or tools to maintain authoritarian military rule. Uh, and prior to the massacre, there was absolutely no question that prior to June 3rd, there were many efforts on the part of the military council, Burhan himself and Himiti, in order to entice the traditional political parties, including the Umma party, for example, and some would say other traditional parties, certainly some of the smaller Islamist political parties like the Popular Congress Party, into the fold to draw them away from the umbrella opposition of the forces of freedom of change. There were indications in the negotiations prior to June 3rd that there would be the possibility of undermining the unity of the opposition by bringing these traditional parties to basically the fold under the umbrella of the military council itself. But what occurred on June 3rd was, in my estimation, a huge miscalculation, a strategic miscalculation by the military council and Hamid himself. Because immediately after the massacre, and given the level of the violence of the massacre, of course, uh, that closed the ranks uh, within the opposition, including the Ummah party and other parties that may have been willing to engage in negotiations with the military council separately. So the, the real depth, severity of the violence has now brought all of the political parties into taking one position against the military council, primarily because they genuinely, I believe, are appalled by what happened to the Sudanese victims of the massacre. And also because at the moment, the Sudanese street is unanimous in opposition uh, to the military council and what they did. And uh, no political party that is worthy of any legitimacy or hopes to maintain any legitimacy with the Sudanese people uh, would negotiate separately with the military council at this uh, moment. And so what the unintended consequences of the massacre have been on the part from the perspective of the military council and Hemeti is to actually 
reunite the opposition of the forces of freedom of change, even though there were discussions and perhaps some issues of divisions in the past. And this is why in the mediation at the moment, you find great unanimity in terms of the conditions put forward uh, that are agreed upon by all of the different uh, groupings that make up uh, the opposition. So this strategy of divide and rule that uh, Mr. Hameti is well known for does not seem to be working. This particular divide and rule strategy of trying to co-opt the traditional political parties or some form of political forces is not working. And so what Hameti has resorted uh, to trying to do at the moment in the past few days is to try to generate support from a separate constituency. In other words, having lost the legitimacy from the Sudanese people who are the protesters, and of course, having lost any kind of legitimacy with respect to the political parties themselves, he is now going to trying to co-opt traditional leaders from his area in Darfur that belong to his also his clan and other clans in the region uh, by basically uh, promoting and uh, patronizing sheikhs from the different clans in the different parts of the country, promising them not only political appointments in the future, but even more importantly, finance and funding, if they decide, if they agree to be loyal to him. So he's trying to reconstruct new patronage networks from the traditional leaders using institutions that date back to the colonial era. These are native administrations or local administrations that were used by successive governments, including Nimeri and Omar Bashir, in order to establish and institutionalize support among the traditional leaders in different parts of the country. And so what he's doing is really replicating attempts that were done in the past in order to use traditional authorities to generate a new constituency for him as a way to outweigh what in Sudan we call the modern forces that include the political parties, unions, professional associations. But so far it has not been successful because it's very transparent what he's trying to do. And of course, the unanimity of the opposition is so strong that it is unlikely that he'll be able to generate the kind of level of strength from this traditional constituency in ways that would strengthen his power. The protest movement seems to have adjusted its tactics. It has called for a civil disobedience campaign as well as nighttime demonstrations. Protesters have also been placing barricades in the streets and running away because being out there is simply perilous. Can you talk about these tactics and their efficacy? Yes, I, I wouldn't say that these are um, new tactics. I think in previous shows I'd emphasized that uh, there were uh, always from the very beginning a mix of uh, tools of uh, peaceful civil disobedience that had been put on the table by the forces of freedom of change and particularly by the Sudanese professional associations, which uh, really is the organization that orchestrates these protests. There had always from the beginning uh, been an insistence on a combination of uh, different tools associated with peaceful civil disobedience. These include street protests, work stoppages, uh, strikes, neighborhood processions, even moments of silence. And those tools of civil disobedience had always been on the table. And the forces of freedom of change had always insisted that they were not ready to give those up. They had just postponed the implementation of these uh, acts of civil disobedience uh, as an act of good faith in order to enter into negotiations, which I think is something that is very commendable. But following the massacre, most Sudanese and the leadership of the opposition and the Sudanese Professional Association has declared and returned to the strategies 
that they began with in, in December and even before then, as uh, the leaders of the Sudanese Professional Association has have stated, we are back, so to speak, to square one. Because of the sit-in was dispersed violently, the emphasis now is on focusing on protest in the neighborhoods of Khartoum and throughout the region. Over the last two days, you have remarkable resurgence of street protests throughout the neighborhoods of Umdurman and Khartoum. You have protests in Port Sudan that have continued over two days. Protest in Karima in the north, the city of Medani in Al Jazeera state in the central part of the country, really a return to not only protests that encompass the entire social and class spectrum, but once again that encompass the entire region. The strength of this civil disobedience is really important. One element that I think may be new that your listeners would be interested in understanding is that one of the most important tools that the Military Council and Hemiti have been trying to utilize to undermine the uprising and the revolution in Sudan is to cut off linkages between the Sudanese Professional Association and the forces of freedom of change with the street. Uh, One of the most important elements associated with the internet blackout, and this is why it is so crucial, is not only to demoralize the revolutionaries and those supporting the uprising, which of course represent the majority of the people, but also to strategically try to undercut uh, linkages between the leaders of the opposition and the Sudan Professional Association and the protesters in the street in the different towns, uh, the three towns that make up Umdurman and throughout the country. In response, what the Sudanese Professional Association leaders have done is to establish and what I think the Americans would understand as perhaps town hall meetings, nedwat, as we say in Sudan. And that is representatives of the Sudanese Professional Association and the opposition in general are now holding these kind of speaking engagements, so to speak, that make sure that people in the street and the protesters realize that the opposition continues to represent their interest and also to make sure that there is transparency and accountability between the opposition, let's say the Sudanese Professional Association and the Freedom of Forces and Change, and the people who are really braving the streets and protesting at at the risk of their lives. And so this effort on the part of the Military Council and Hemeti to try to disrupt uh, the linkages and alliance between what is essentially a middle-class opposition movement made up of professional associations and the political parties with the people on the street is ineffective because of the ingenuity, once again, of the opposition in making sure that their message is received from them personally to those protesters who are now engaging in protest throughout Khartoum and in many parts of the entire country. The opposition had been mobilizing by posting its calls on social media networks. But as you mentioned, since June 3rd crackdown, internet and mobile phones have been widely cut across Sudan. The internet is now only accessible through land phone lines or fiber optic cables. And even then, the connection is erratic. This internet blackout must have impacted the mobilization of protesters. Absolutely, it has impacted. But what is more interesting is the fact that it has not deterred the protesters. It certainly played a very important role in cutting off communications and making it much more difficult to reach out to everyone in the different parts of the capital city of Khartoum and particularly in the regions. But I think what the military council has underestimated is that uh, for many years there had already been real kind of 
establishment and almost, and I would say institutionalization of neighborhood committees that had linked up with each other face to face and had been coordinating with each other. Not to mention, as uh, Sudanese recently informed me and uh, wanted me to highlight years of volunteerism and engagement in forms of civil disobedience across neighborhoods. And so what you find is, of course, kind of a longer history of uh, mobilization cohesiveness uh, represented by what Sudanese now like to call the Lijan al-Taghir or the Committees for Change. These are genuinely grassroots institutions across the different neighborhoods. And this is why you find such strength and such resurgence in terms of the protest. So yes, while the, the blockage of the internet has certainly reduced the kind of linkages between the opposition and the protesters, I think what is uh, really remarkable is uh, the, the resilience of the protesters throughout Khartoum and throughout the region. And that really has to do with not only tactics, but also one has to say a real unanimous opposition to 30 years of autocratic rule. And as many protesters have highlighted, there's no going back because there is no future, especially for the youth of the country, with this or any military government. And so this call for Madania, for a civilian-led government, is so popular among all of the Sudanese. And the massacre itself has highlighted to many in Sudan, particularly also, we can't forget that it occurred on the 28th of Ramadan itself, where people were fasting for the holy month, that it's very clear that the military council is not intent on you know, ceding power to a civilian-led government unless it is done compelled to do so. Uh, and so both the kind of political objectives, ideological unity in terms of the political objectives and a history of organization, volunteerism across neighborhoods is very, very important. And of course, um, as I just mentioned, you have the leaders of the opposition adapting their own leaderships and their own strategies vis-a-vis -vis these neighborhoods in order to uh, continue to link up with the protesters themselves, and equally importantly also to send out the message that the forces of freedom of change in the opposition is reflecting their interest, understands their interest, and they are holding these town hall meetings, so to speak, or at least in the neighborhoods, detailing every aspect of the negotiations. In many cases, the opposition has admitted to mistakes in the past for the sake of transparency and accountability, and they have also made it very clear to those in the neighborhoods that their number one condition, of course, is to, in addition, of course, to the longer objective of a civilian-led government is to take very seriously the massacres that occurred and to call for an international investigation to investigate the killing of these martyrs that has really affected the entire country. Khaled, let's talk about the repression in Sudan. There have been reports of protesters being arrested and taken to unmarked buildings where they are severely beaten and tortured. I must say that this is reminiscent of what the security apparatus did in Iran when the protest movement started 10 years ago in June 1988 in the aftermath of the presidential elections there. In Iran, there were protesters who actually lost their lives in the, those detention centers. Can you talk about these detention centers? What do we know about them? 
Uh, yes, well, unfortunately, the model from the 1990s, as you probably know, of the ghost houses, those disappeared and tor tortured, began very immediately after the coup, Umar Bashir took over the Islamist fund, uh, bad coup of 1989 in that summer. Iran played an important role. Uh, I think it's well documented now that there was at that time a close relationship between the Iranian government and the uh, Bashir regime, and uh, they helped to establish and even train some of the uh, members of the intelligence services that enacted a great deal of torture. It's difficult to describe the amount of and different forms of torture, humiliation, but also isolation and, of course, physical torture that began as early as the 1990s. I'm glad you asked this question because I think what maybe listeners are not aware is that these 30 years have really uh, represented a continuation of these kind of detentions, torture. Uh, this occurred throughout the 1990s. 28 military officers were summarily executed right after the coup. Very few Sudanese forget that. All of these are considered martyrs in these uh, three decades. That continued with uh, the violence against the Adforians. That was of course, uh, not only in terms of the killing of so many um, hundreds of thousands, but also the use of sexual-based and gender-based violence against uh, uh, against uh, victims in Darfur and throughout uh, the in the Nuba Mountains and elsewhere. A variety of different forms of human rights violations, including detentions and torture, which uh, are legion. I mean, you just have to. Uh, really look at uh, Amnesty International's reports and others. Uh, Sudan, through the past three decades, has represented and has had the worst record of uh, human rights, one of the worst records in the entire region. Uh, and of course, uh, we know of at least 25 individuals, including Bashir, have been indicted for uh, crimes against uh, humanity and war crimes. Uh, so uh, I think that many of your listeners are aware of that. But what they may not be fully cognizant of is that uh, this uprising is also um, a result of the memory and understanding that all of these uh, this violence and torture has continued uh, by the early by 2011 Unfortunately, with the emergence of the youth movement, uh, youth in particular were targeted uh, at the time, and they continue to be. And now, um, while I don't have the specifics of those detained, uh, um, there are uh, thousands that continue to be detained. This is why it's one of the conditions of the opposition that uh, this is a central condition to resume negotiations, that they must be released, which is extremely important. At the beginning of the protest in December, if you look at uh, the martyrs, uh, some were shot by snipers, but a very well-known incident, of course, as you know, a doctor trying to save patients was killed point blank. You had a school teacher uh, who was uh, tortured in detention, and uh, his uh, uh, he becomes, uh, this is in Khashm al-Kirba to the north, and um, he was uh, one of the, you know, kind of big uh, uh, continues to be a very important, uh, you know, symbol of the kind of torture that has been meted out uh, by uh, not only uh, the Bashir regime, but even the, the military council that is uh, heading uh, what is going on now. Um, the details of the massacre itself, there are reports of people who are not only thrown in the Nile after being um, executed, but also, you know, uh, having their feet tied 
to cement blocks and thrown in, in the Nile. So those kind of issues are very important. And this is why I have to say that it's, of course, similar to Iran and other cases. It is also one of the reasons that the Sudanese community outside, the diasporic community, and those who are interested in helping have mobilized to a degree that I personally haven't seen before. The Sudanese diaspora especially has uh, campaigned and protested throughout the world. There is mobilization to try to deal with the internet blackout uh, through a variety of different means in order to make sure to bring the word out in terms of what is happening to innocent civilians. Uh, many, of course, are really concerned of the young leadership that is leading these protests. So I think the result of it, it's very similar to, to what happened in Iran and in other cases, of course, throughout the region. I think it is because of this unfortunate history that continues to go on that the Sudanese diaspora is really insistent on publicizing what is going on in the Sudan at the moment. And you see the condemnations of different human rights bodies and the EU, African Union, others that are highlighting the human rights catastrophe that, that is going on. Khaled Madani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies and is the chair of the African Studies program at McGill University. You can listen to the full interview on Voices of the Middle East and North Africa SoundCloud or on Status Audio Magazine at statushour.com. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. هذا وقت الأسود التي تمسح حبال نحن كوحدة قوة تقدر تحرك الجبال إلى متى نخان إلى متى من حكم دكتاتوري نهان في هذا الأرض سنة كما تدين وتدان في هذا الأرض حكمة كما تعين وتعان فقد حان الأوان إلى خلق النظام ومن عاش جبان فقد راض الظلام إلى متى نكون فقد قوم الكلام إلى متى نساق وفي الفم اللجام وبالفم نهان وبالهم نعان لقد سالت عيون دمعا من سيد الدمام لقد عشنا قرون على حلم السلام على حلم الأمان على قهر النظام فقد حان الأوان لكي نقوم للدكتاتورية تدعكم السيادية بجابي ولابك بجابي In June 2009, millions of Iranians took to the streets to dispute the stolen presidential elections which gave then Mahmoud Ahmadinejad a second term in office. To mark the 10th anniversary of the mass protest in Iran, which is also known as the Green Movement, we bring back a conversation with German-Iranian documentary filmmaker Ali Samadi Ahadi. Mr. Ahadi was watching government's violent crackdown from Germany, and in the midst of a complete media blackout, grainy cell phone images, blogs, and Twitter posts became the main venue for pro-democracy protesters to document government's violent crackdown. In his documentary film, The Green Wave, Mr. Ahadi brings together fractured pieces of footage filmed on mobile phones and testimonies from bloggers in the country to document the regime's brutality 
following the post-elections mass protest. He started by telling me why he decided to make this film. When you saw all this violence on the streets in Iran, it was very clear. Nobody can sit there and watch only what is going on. Like other Iranians out of the country, I tried also my best to support them by sharing information from Iran with colleagues, by going to the demonstrations. But after a while, I became sick and tired from the situation that had the chance to react to the violence. And I didn't want it only to react anymore. I wanted to act in a way and to decide for myself what I would like to do. That was the reason why I started to make this film. Your film opens with a scene that shows a boy running on the streets and the narrator in the boy's voice is saying that his dad told him, we are a nation which has been searching for its lost voice for the past 150 years. They failed time and again, and now it's the young generation's time to try its luck. When you started making this film, how did you see the Green Movement? The Green Movement started with a very simple question, and that was, we want change. Yeah, and where is my vote? Well, the where is my vote became, uh, came right after the elections, when, when their wish for change yeah. disappeared. But the first thing was, before the election, was very clear. They didn't want Ahmadinejad anymore as a president, because they had the feeling that he is lying to them, and he is not representing them in a way how they wanted to be represented. Mm -hmm. And that was the main engine why people went to the elections and mobilized themselves. But then when their wish, when their option disappeared, they were trying to play in a rule which was dictated by the system, in a game which was dictated by the system. They didn't want any regime change, but they wanted within the system a change which can represent them in a way how they wanted to be represented. Mm. And then suddenly things changed, and this next question came up. We played your game with your roles, but where is now our vote? Mm. And when the answer to this very simple question came as bullets, then the question changed. There was no more the question about where is my vote and where is my fundamental human rights, which is part of the Iranian constitution in a way, or it is at least in the UN Charter, which is signed by Iranian system, then they said, okay, if you don't respect me, if you don't respect our fundamental rights, then we have to uh, get rid of you. Ali, in your documentary film, The Green Wave, you juxtapose animation and real-life footage next to personal narratives to show the brutal crackdown after the 2009 presidential elections in Iran. Why did you turn to animation to tell that story? Because we were not able to go to the country and make images, and colleagues of us were either arrested or they were under real, real hard pressure. And uh, lots of journalists were arrested, lots of filmmakers disappeared, even if you had a simple cell phone the police would arrest you and uh, make you disappear. And, and that was the situation where we started to make that film. So it was very clear that we are not going to go to Iran and be able to make images, especially because the events were in the past. So we had to 
reenact them. And I couldn't make any reenactment in Germany and playing the situation of Iran in Germany. It would harm the film more than it would help them. And that was the reason why I had to deal with the images I got. So these were mostly images from news agencies. These were mostly images from Internet and also images from courageous people. They helped us by smuggling images out of the country. And even though I got all these images, I was not able to tell the whole story with that images because they were like broken puzzle pieces. And I had to find another language, visual language and narrative language to feed this gap. And for that, I used blogs because Iranians are very strong in blogging. And for visualization of these blogs, which are more or less telling different aspects of this events, I decided to use animation because the texts are so strong that I wanted to give them more space by keeping the images abstract and give the texts more possibility to link themselves with the audience directly. And you also used Twitter messages. Yes. And as you said, you relied on a lot of real footage, meaning cell phone images that protesters captured during the protests. And some of the initial images that you have were from the news agencies, but really very early on in the protest, because Mm -hmm. a few weeks after the protest began in June, they basically canceled all the um, journalist permits and they threw them out of the country. So we only relied on those quote-unquote amateur footage, as they call them here. So how did you verify the authenticity of these images and these Twitter posts? Well, from Twitter messages, I went through about 3,500 pages on Twitter messages. If you have ever read, get in contact with Twitter, Twitter is nothing literally high-quality thing. So going through 3,500 pages, it is really, really painful job and searching the right messages. Mm-hmm. And for the blogs, I, we went through 1,500 pages of blogs. And uh, we had tons and tons of images we got from Iran. You know, when people via Twitter, via blogs, via YouTube, via Facebook, are describing the same situation from different perspectives, then it becomes reliable and believable. And so that is the main tool for me, or that was the main tool for me, to see what took place on the streets of Iran. On the other hand, I am not really worried about data. I don't care so much about data doesn't matter for me if they killed 50 or 500 or 5,000, if they put 200 people in jail or 200,000 just because they asked for their fundamental rights. The question is something else. The question is what even five people have to be killed just because they asked for their rights, just because they asked, where's my vote? And this question We are not talking about policy. We are talking about fundamental rights of human beings, which is the basic of all relationships, economically, politically, and also culturally. And this, I would say, is very obvious that in Iran in the last two years, 
the Iranian government and the Iranian system really fighted all the right, their own people. One of the scenes I remember also when I was watching the protests unfold in Iran in 2009, a clip that shows security forces on rooftops shooting at people and Mm -hmm. killing them. Mm -hmm. And I read in one of the interviews that you did, we saw only one clip. It was shown over and over again. You said there were 100 cameras Mm -hmm. that kept um, filming these sniper shooters on the rooftops in Tehran. And that was amazing that there were 100 people capturing exactly the same crime at the same time. And we just got to see maybe a couple of them. Yeah. And that is something I would say when uh, if the situation changes in Iran, if really people are free and secure to talk about what took place 2009 after the elections, then so many things will come up. It is so interesting or so painful to see. There was a footage where, where the police cars run over uh, women and killed her. And then there was a big discussion because the the image went through the whole internet and uh, news agencies and the Iranian system had to react to that and then the court asked for people who were there in that moment to come and to testify what took place there and there was a lady which were ready to testify and when she went to the court they arrested her and put her for I think two or three years in jail just because she wanted to testify what what took place there. They also arrest their lawyers. Yeah, they don't care about lawyer or activists or family members. They do their best to keep the pressure as high as they can, and that makes the situation very unique. I mean, if you look to the situation in Egypt or in Tunisia or even to the uh, revolution in 1979 in Iran, The mosques were all the time safe place for the people. So if the people went to the mosques, they were more or less security. What they made in Islamic Republic of Iran, when the people went to the mosques to be secure, they started to burn the mosques down. And it was never happened in Shah's regime during the revolution. But in the Islamic Republic, so-called Islamic Republic, besieges went to the roofs of the mosque to shoot at the demonstrators. And people who were screaming Allah Akbar were killed in the Islamic Republic. So that shows what that means for them to have certain kind of ethic, moral rules. They don't care about any of them. I was arrested on July 8th. I'm 21. I can still hardly believe that I'm free again. That day, I was riding around by motorbike with a friend and my friend was filming on his cell phone when suddenly plainclothes men attacked us and beat us up. They threw us into a bus full of injured and wounded people and took us to a police station. I had been beaten up so badly that I didn't recognize where exactly we were going. Then they lined us up against the wall. Me and my friend were standing next to each other. A stout man in plain clothes came over to us, grabbed every other person and threw them back into the bus. 
I haven't heard from my friend since. They took me and a bunch of other people to Kahrizak prison. It was unbelievable. When I found this blog, I was talking about his experiences in Kahrizak. It was, I think, two or three weeks after the elections. The situation was really hard and very, very violent in Iran. Around about three or four months later, when we already started to produce the film and to produce the animations, the Iranian National Broadcasting Service, which is in the hands of the regime, showed images from Kahrizak and made interviews about what was taking place in Kahrizak. And which was very interesting was that all the informations we had in this blog were more or less the same like the informations what they showed in the TV. Mm-hmm. In the TV, they didn't talk about raping people, about torturing them. But they were talking about how three people were killed. Not exactly why they were killed in jail or in this detention center, but that they passed away. We know that more than 200 people were killed during that nine months on the streets and the hospitals in jails. There are so many people are injured and they fear to go to hospitals or to doctors because their risk is too high. And this showed so many people, the brutality, what took place in Kahrizak and other prisons. Also in the streets, also in the hospitals, showed very well that this government is not willing to hear what these people want. And that changed the view of the majority for this regime. And that is, I think, the big change which started with where is my vote and now they don't ask anymore about the their vote, they ask about the regime change. And there is also a very moving animation scene in which a young nurse remembers protesters who were brought in into a hospital in Tehran. Some mm-hmm. of them died because of their injuries and some of them were taken away by security forces and they just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows what happened to these people. Mm-hmm. Were you able to get some actual testimonies from people inside Iran who could corroborate this story and give you more information about it? Well, there are so many people. They came up after the elections and talked about experiences. As I said, there are so many people. They are really badly injured and badly beaten. Some of them can't walk anymore. Some of them have the bullets in in the body still, but they can't go to hospitals to have these operations and so on. When my film started in Germany, a lady came to me and said, we are trying to help these injured people in Iran by organizing them some medical support outside Iran. The number is so huge. It is so horrible what they had to go through during that time. Ali, you relied mainly for your documentary film on social networking sites like Twitter and blogs and also cell phone images to piece together what happened after the 2009 rigged presidential elections in Iran. Has it ever been done in a documentary? One reviewer said, you did not know that this process would create its own definition, a new trend for intellectual documentary filmmaking. 
Well, it is the beginning of, of a kind of uh, filmmaking uh, because you can make a very, a very simple cell phone, incredibly high-definition images, and you can use for cinema, and you can share them immediately with the whole world. This changed the rules, and you can see that the Iranian government, even they put their filmmakers into jails, they put them under pressure, they were not able to stop filmmakers making a film about the situation in Iran. So if the people in Iran, the filmmakers, if my colleagues can't make it in Iran, somebody else will come up and make it out of the country. And the situation is not comparable to 79 or 80s, where we were really cut off from the information flow. But we are able to use all this information and all this testifies to make a film out of the country. My father always said we are part of a nation that has been searching for its lost voice for 150 years. And he said we've come quite close, we just have to reach out and we'll regain it. Ali Samadi Ahadi is the director of the documentary film The Green Wave. You can watch The Green Wave on Vimeo and we'll also link to it on our Twitter and SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast, and Jadalia Easy. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. هرگز جدا جدا درمان نمی شود